The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel and I'm the hostess for this podcast, or host. I figure host works both ways. The producer for this show is Steve Siegel, my husband. And if you have any interest in telling your story on the podcast, please reach out to us. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. We answer our emails. We'll get back to you pretty quickly. So definitely reach out if you have a story you'd like to tell or just something you'd like to share with us. Today's interview is with a gentleman named Theoren or Theo Fleury. Theo Fleury is a Canadian former professional ice hockey player. He played for the Calgary Flames, Colorado Avalanche, New York Rangers, and Chicago Blackhawks of the National Hockey League. Tapara of Finland's SM Liga and the Belfast Giants of the UK's Elite Ice Hockey League. He was drafted by the Flames in the eighth round and he played over 1,000 games in the NHL between 1989 and 2003. He twice represented Canada at the Winter Olympics, winning a gold medal in 2002. Throughout his career, he battled drug and alcohol addictions that ultimately forced him out of the NHL in 2003. Fleury co-wrote a book called Playing With Fire, a best-selling autobiography released in October 2009, in which he revealed that he had been sexually abused by former coach Graham James. Flurry filed a criminal complaint against James, who subsequently pleaded guilty to charges of sexual assault. Flurry traveled to Vancouver in 2013, where he assisted and co-hosted the 19th Annual Aboriginal Achievement Awards. Additionally, he hosts the Theo Flurry 14 Hockey Camp, which helps to teach, inspire, and educate young hockey players ages 6 to 16. Flurry has since become an advocate for sexual abuse victims and developed a career as a public speaker. He was a recipient of the Inspire Award in the sports category in 2013. Let's talk to Theo Flurry. Theo, thank you, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and being willing to share your story. We know that when people share their story, you know, there are similarities, there are differences, but we always feel like somebody listening is going to get something out of your story and reach out for help. And that's the whole purpose. That's what it should be all about exactly. always. Right. You know, and, uh, it was funny when I started on this journey, you know, uh, when I told my own story, um, I had no idea what the hell I was getting myself into and quickly realized the enormity of, you know, the epidemic of trauma, mental health and addiction. And, uh, around that time I had a spiritual teacher, mm -hmm. right? Cause the first three steps of the program is finding a God of my own understanding. Right. And so I said to her, I said, uh, She's a very wise person. Uh, 40-some-odd years ago, she was living on Skid Row in Winnipeg and uh, picked herself up, dusted herself off, and just became this incredible human being. And so I said to her, I said, Grandma, I said, uh, I said I'm completely overwhelmed, and I don't have a clue what the hell I'm doing. And you know what she said to me? She said, one person at a time. Truer words, you know? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the whole thing. It's going to be one person at a time. But Theo, let me, um, the way I kind of like to start, and I really appreciate you telling that story, is how did your journey to drugs and alcohol and addiction, how did that all start with you? Mm-hmm. Yep. So both my experience, both my parents uh, experienced childhood trauma in their life. And that manifested itself into 
addictions. So my mom was uh, severely depressed. And uh, so in the uh, 60s, you remember that wonder drug for absolutely everything on the planet for yep. called Valium? So she was prescribed Valium uh, early in her teenage life. And uh, she got addicted to it. And, uh, and then my dad uh, was an alcoholic. And so I grew up in this very chaotic, violent, completely insane environment for, you know, the first 15 years of my life. And then uh, as a phenom hockey player, uh, I ran into a coach and a scout who basically promised me a one-way ticket to the NHL if I followed and listened to his advice. And what happened over uh, a two-and-a-half-year period of hanging out with this guy, he raped me 150 times. And so what I was left with was a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, and there wasn't one person in the world I could have told. You know, Theo, I'm just going to I'm just going to hockey... interrupt you just for a second and tell you that I as a mother am sorry that that happened to you. That should never happen to a young person. Well, I'm sorry. No. No. Well, and and it's hard to believe that child trafficking is now a billion dollar industry on the planet. Just wrong. Right? So exactly. And uh and so it wasn't too long after that that um, I discovered alcohol as a coping mechanism from all of the emotional pain and suffering that I was experiencing from those two traumatic experiences as a child and as an adolescent. And uh, I would say from the very first sip of alcohol that I was an instant alcoholic and then, uh, you know, as I progressed and started adding marijuana and street drugs and, and all of that, uh, you know, um, which is, you know, a typical story uh, of somebody who's experienced some sort of traumatic experience in their life. And they use that as a coping mechanism. And, uh, and then eventually, uh, you know, I got to the point where, 16 years ago, I had a fully loaded pistol in my mouth, ready to pull the trigger and, you know, end my life. Not because I wanted to die, but because I was completely exhausted from living in emotional pain and suffering for the majority of my life. And I tried everything on the planet to get rid of this <clears throat> this you know, feeling. I was watching one of your videos, Theo, and it said that you didn't sleep for 27 years. And I don't understand how you survived at all, not being able to sleep. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get to the reason and the purpose why I'm here. But, uh, you know, um, I was molested in a dark room. Okay. So I could never see my abuser and he would wait till I was asleep and then he would, you know, attack me. So, <clears throat> um, you know, I had severe PTSD for that whole entire time. And that's why I couldn't sleep is because every time I laid my head on the pillow, all I would see was this scene. Right. And, and so, yeah, like I needed alcohol, I needed drugs because it would help, it would at least allow me to fall asleep. You know, otherwise without it, I would just lay awake and stare at the ceiling, you know, right? I, I can and, totally uh, understand how that would happen. If I had experienced what you had experienced, drugs and alcohol, that would be the way to go. It just would. Mm -hmm. I mean, how else are you supposed to yeah. cope with it? Yeah. Well, and, and as a child too, you know, like my, my father, you know, because I was my mom's protector, right. You know, I would have to wait up 
to see what kind of shape my dad was going to be in. Is he going to be the happy drug drunk or is he going to be the, you know, the angry guy? And, you know, my mom would also poke the bear too. Right. You know? And so, uh, you know, as a five-year-old, I got my referee jersey on standing in the middle of my parents, like keeping them from. Not something know, a five-year-old um, should have to do, you know? No, and I have a question, Theo. No. You you said your mom, when she was a teenager, um, started, was, became addicted to Valium. Was that pretty much all she ever took in terms of drugs? Yeah. 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 So she's been hooked on some sort of pharmaceutical drug now for... She's probably 50 Still. years. Yeah. And uh, she is in a home and she's barely functioning. I'm sorry. So, you know, all of the side effects from big pharma, you know, and I, to be honest with you, I, I don't know how she's still alive, but, you know, she has a certain will, I guess, to live and, and, uh, but it's, you know, it's really hard and it's really sad to see, um, you know, somebody that you love and care about go down that road, Absolutely. right? You know, and uh, and unfortunately, you know, she doesn't really want help. And when you don't want help, you can't be helped. Exactly. Right. And uh, and so so, yeah, so, I, you know, I was carrying all of this um, pain emotional pain um, around. And, you know, like I said, I had, I had a gun in my mouth and, uh, you know, was too chicken to pull the trigger. And I said to myself, well, geez, I guess I want to live. And so um, I better change some things, right? Now, was this during your hockey career so, or after your no, this okay. was, this was after, this was after, yeah. And, uh, what, like six months after I sort of left the game, this is what happened. And, and you were uh, pretty much a, a I uh, guess we could say like a functioning addict or a functioning alcoholic throughout your hockey career. Is that? Till, till the end, till the end. And, you know, people think that my addiction took me out of the game. That is completely false. What took me out of the game was I could no longer manage my mental health because I suffer from severe depression, uh, panic and anxiety disorder. And towards the end of my career, um, you know, nobody was talking about mental health in, uh, you know, late 90s, right? And so they put me on this cocktail of pharmaceuticals to, you know, manage the, and then I was drinking at the same, same time. And so, you know, I, and, and it was no longer fun anymore. Like it, it wasn't my happy place. Like it used to be, you know, when I was a kid. And so, you know, I don't like the word addiction because it has so much shame attached to it. Okay, so I've sort of changed the word addiction to emotional pain management. I think is what I it think is. that makes sense, and I think you're right. There's so yeah. much stigma attached to addiction, and what people don't understand yeah. is that uh, the addiction is actually the solution to a problem, and the problem is underlying the yes. addiction. Yeah. Well. And there are several layers of that onion that, you know, that need to be peeled off. And what's funny is, you know, we're going through COVID here in the coronavirus is that the liquor stores and the dope shops are essential they're services. They'll deliver to your house. Call <laughs> up and say, Can I have a bottle of something and get it? Jeez, I wish I was an addict or an alcoholic now. It Seriously, easy, Theo, you know? what drugs did the Sykes put you on? Oh, I was on them all. Paxil, Zoloft, you, you name it, all of it. Yeah. And did so, you take those at all while um, you were playing hockey or? Yep. Yep. Clonazepam. Oh, there's a good one. 
Yeah. I remember, uh, I remember the last treatment center I went to, um, I was on clonazepam. And so when I went for my assessment, uh, with the doctor, he was like, why are you on this stuff? Clonazepam. I said, I don't know. I said, you know, the NHL doctors prescribe this for anxiety and depression and all that. And so basically, uh, for 30 days, while I was in treatment, all I did was shake all day long coming off the clonazepam. So I didn't really learn anything while I was there because I was, you know, physically ill, wow. you know? And, uh, and so, and so, yeah. So September 18th, 2005 was the day that I got sober and the day that I started down this path of healing and sobriety and you know all this really interesting stuff right now you say it very uh, easily but how did you get sober (laughs) well um so the night before uh i was living with a girl and for the first six months of our relationship we partied together and like every other relationship in my life, it was going down the same road, going down the same path, because there's always one common denominator in all these relationships, and that's me and this big pile of shit that I carry into each relationship. And so her and I had this horrible argument. I was left in the washroom on my hands and knees. And... uh And so I remembered a conversation that I had when I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I was trying to get sober. Okay. I went to treatment there, got my first AA sponsor, got plugged into recovery in Santa Fe, which is probably one of the best places I've ever been to for recovery. And uh, I used to go to an all men's meeting every Wednesday night in this guy's backyard. It was just a beautiful, beautiful place. And so one night after meeting, I was outside having a cigarette after the meeting. And this old guy, this old biker guy, who was one of the most handsome fellas I've ever seen. He had beautiful, long, white hair. And, you know, he was still kind of toned and ripped. And he had this great tan. And he had this permanent whiskey voice. And he used to introduce himself at meetings all the time. Jack, alcoholic, you know. So I'm standing outside having a smoke and he comes outside and he says, hey, kid, how you doing? And I was like, not very good. I said, I'm barely hanging on. And then he said, "Uh, how are you doing with your higher power? And I looked at him and I was kind of like, confused and I was like you know it's not happening higher power exactly and then he said something to me I'll never forget he said do you realize in this program that you get to pick your own god and I was like what the fuck are you talking about pick my own god really because my experience with religion was Uh, Sundays, I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church. And then on Thursday nights, I went to my mom's Jehovah Witness Bible study. Okay? So, a very punitive look at spirituality and a cult. Okay? They basically told me that the world was going to end at any point. Okay? So I'm going, pick my own God. Well, I only have two perspectives here. Okay. And I don't want any part of either one. Right. And so here, here I am on the washroom floor. I'm crying. I'm like disheveled. I punched a hole in the wall and I'm angry. And I remember this conversation I had with Jack. So I said, okay, I'm going to give this God of my own understanding a shot. So I went up one side of God. I went down the other side of God. I called him every single name in the book that I 
could think of. I made up a couple of my own. And then I said to him, God, I realize you only give me as much as I can handle. I said, I am full, full. I go, you can't put one more thing on my plate. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, please, 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 God, take away the obsession to drink and do drugs. And I went to bed. And the next morning I got up and uh, in my house at that time, on my way to the washroom, I had to walk by this really massive mirror. And so as I'm walking, wiping the sleep out of my eyes, I glance out of the corner of my eye and I stop dead in my tracks. And I'm staring at myself in the mirror for the first time and I don't know how long because I, I couldn't, I couldn't look at myself because of the shame, because of the guilt, because of, you know, all this wow. stuff. And so I started staring, you know, 10 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by, 30 minutes goes by. And finally I went, holy shit. My prayer has been answered. And that was September 18th of 2005. And I haven't had a drink or a drug. Since, wow. Very, very know? well done you. You know, I, I want to make a comment yeah. on this gentleman that you were talking to about the, I'm assuming it was a 12-step program. And it's interesting yeah. because I think that my understanding has been that the majority of the 12-step programs are, are very Christian-oriented, which of course does... Well, they use okay. the word God, which scares the majority of people because most of us are pissed off at right. God. Right. And so, you know, I, I don't subscribe to the white bearded guy. In Understood. The sky, okay. I don't, I don't get that concept, but when Jack approached me with a God of my own understanding, the light bulb went on. I'm telling you, I think right? it's huge, Theo. I had a gentleman, a young man who was a co-host for the first year we did the podcast, and he was raised in the Jewish faith. But when he went to a 12-step mm. program, because of the way it was addressed to him, he could not relate to it. And I think that what I'm getting from what you're saying is that anybody listening you make your own decision about God and it is not dictated to you by any group, church, or any individual. It's your own decision and your own relationship. Yeah. Well, like I, instead of religion, I get the word spirituality, exactly. right? Because in the healing process, there's three things that we need to heal. Our physical being, our emotional being and our exactly. spiritual being, right? And, you know, I got the physical part, I got the emotional part, but I kept butting my head up against, you know, this final thing. And most addicts and alcoholics that I work with have that problem. But the first three steps in the program is all about spirituality. Interesting. Right? And if you skip over, you know, the steps are there in order for a reason. Right. right? And so I kept skipping over those first three steps, you know, the powerlessness, you know, finding something greater than myself that can restore myself to sanity, you know, all of these things. And ultimately, what I think spirituality is all about relationship. Yep. Okay. Because my trauma happened in relationship. Okay. So how am I going to heal? Well, I'm going to heal in relationship. Makes sense. And the one relationship that I neglected the most was the relationship I had with myself. Right. Because after my abuser left my life, guess what happened? I abused myself. I took uh. over the abuse. Right? Because in every relationship, I was abandoned. Secondly, I didn't feel good enough. 
Thirdly, I didn't feel lovable. And the fourth thing, do I even exist? Wow. Right? And that ultimately is what trauma teaches us. And those become the core beliefs of who we think we are. Until we start to have a relationship with ourselves. And the better relationship we have with ourselves, the better all of our relationships with other people, places, and things will be the same. If I don't love myself, I can't be in a relationship with somebody else and love them. Right. And so, you know, recovery is all about self. And, you know, I've always heard this comment, well, it's really selfish of you to, well, no, without this, I got nothing. You remember the old guy, selfish, self-centered, fucking asshole. That's, that's who that guy was. Right. Right. Do you like the guy you see in front of you right now? Yes, I do. Well, I had to go on this journey to discover for the first time in my life that I could be by myself and be okay with being by myself because I could never do that. You know, you are listening to the addiction podcast point of no return for more information on the podcast or to reach out. If you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at the addiction podcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, the addiction podcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononohai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Let me just, I, I just want to stop you for a second. So you're standing in front of this mirror and yep. that we could say that, that that and or when you had the gun in your mouth was sort of your point of no return where you realized you had to move forward. Yeah. What are some of the things that you did to move forward from that point to improve your life? <laughs> well, the first thing I did was I made a promise to myself that no matter what happened to me, for the rest of my life that I wasn't going to drink and I wasn't going to pick up a drug. Okay. Because, you know, that pile of shit that I was carrying around was like enormous. And I knew that if I drank or picked up again, that that pile would only get higher. Right. And not only that, it would cause me to be more isolated, more alone, more bitter, more angry, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, even though I got sober, I still have the ism. Okay. And that's the part that's going to get me in trouble. And so I needed to work on that ism part to change my belief system, you know, how I thought about myself, all, all of these things. And, you know, I've hit more rock bottoms in sobriety than I ever did drinking because I'm actually feeling my feelings 
for the very first Isn't time. Isn't that in my interesting? Life, because when you're right? doing drugs or alcohol, you don't know that it's bottom because you don't feel it. Well, no, you're 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 suppressing and you're numbing out right. those feelings, right? And you know, I was a really angry guy. Okay, that's what made me such a successful hockey player was I was angry. Kind right? of a brutal sport. Kind and of, anger, isn't it? yeah, it's it's awesome i loved it you know the best anger management class i could have ever gone to was called <laughs> the nhl because i could go out on the ice and beat the shit out of somebody and they put me in the box for five minutes and they wouldn't put handcuffs on me for assault <laughs> you know legal legal license to assault that's funny yes yeah but really what what i was was i was really sad Okay, because that's what anger is, is anger is sadness turned inward. And I never, well, in a macho sport like mine, you know, how am I going to get to my sadness pieces, which is the biggest piece I need to heal in myself is that, you know, is that that's sadness, right? You can't right? cry as a big macho hockey player. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, um, you know, I wrote a second book called Conversations with a Rattlesnake is the name of the book. And I wrote it with a neuroscientist, okay? And what she told me was that she could help me through relationship and conversation. She could help me rewire all of my trauma. Huh. Okay. And, you know, the book is a four year conversation between the two of us where she is helping me rewire my brain and rewire my trauma. Right. And that has come to fruition. And it has been an amazing, amazing experience. That has been an amazing experience to um, have somebody who is relentlessly positive, um, you know, stuck by me the whole entire way and walked me through this journey of, you know, because our brains are neuroplastic, right? Which means, you know, rewiring, you know, can happen. And, uh, and what did I need to rewire was those four things, abandonment, not good enough, not lovable. Do I even exist? Right. Those were the things okay. that I need. This to was your second book. What was your and first book? My first book was, uh, just about my life, right? I, I put it all out on paper, you know, and uh, it's called playing with fire. Um, and it's, it's quite the read. <laughs> I'm sure there was a there was a review from one of the uh, big newspapers in Canada called the Globe and Mail, and basically the the review was we can't believe this guy survived his own yep. life. <laughs> you know, so, I feel the um, same way listening to you tell it. I'm I'm amazed that you yeah. you not only made it to the NHL, you were a huge hockey star and made it through all of that with what you had experienced as a young person. It's, it's amazing. I mean, you have to, yeah. you have to, if nothing else, take a win that you made it that far. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm donating my body to science after it. because I don't know how I did it. Um, but you know, that is a, comment that I get all the time at speaking engagements or book signings or whatever is people come up to me and say, I can't believe you're still here. And you know, it's huge you know? because I say this whenever we have a story that has some horrific element to it, it's like a lot of the people listening, I don't think their lives were that bad. And so if someone like you, Theo, can fully confront and get past their mm. background and their childhood abuse 
Well, the average Joe Mm -hmm. who listens to this podcast can get help and get past it. Yeah. And, but there's, there's one thing that I'll give you a little bit of pushback on is, you know, a lot of people do say, man, my story is not as bad as yours, but then I go, hold it, stop right there. Because my emotional pain and your emotional pain is exactly the same. Okay. And it isn't until we tap into the reason why we are in that kind of pain and suffering that now we become calm. That's a very good point. Right. You know, and, and so I wrote, I, I sat down to write this book for very selfish reasons. The first book. Okay. You know, it was kind of like doing a fourth and fifth step in the program of, you know, 12 step. So I want to take one last look at it, put it in its rightful place and move on with my life. Well, when the book was finished, um, there was a lot of hype around the book because there was a lot of inkling that I was one of these guys that this guy had abused and I hadn't talked about right. it yet. Right. So there was a lot of hype and there was a lot of anticipation and all of that. Well, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. And so others had come forth about this Graham James prior to you writing the book. Yeah. 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 He is a notorious, he's like Jerry wow. Sandusky or Larry Nasser. Okay. But there's an interesting stat around pedophilia. By the time a pedophile gets caught, on average, by the time he gets caught, he has 125 victims by the time he gets caught. Okay? So, uh, before my book came out, three other guys before me had come out with their stories, and he had spent some time in jail before... So he was out of prison when my story came up. did he go back? Well, he ended up uh, getting a pardon and then fucked off to Guadalajara, Mexico. And you know what Guadalajara, Mexico is? It's one of the biggest child trafficking places in the world. And so he was living down there when my book came out. Okay. And so like, I, I really didn't have any idea the impact that writing this book would have until the very first book signing. You know, when I left the game of hockey, all I had was a grade 12 diploma from Vanier collegiate in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Okay. And I had more than half my life left to live and I had no idea what the rest of my life was going to look like. Okay. And so I had little or no expectations that anybody was going to read this book. Okay. So I show up at the first book signing in Toronto, downtown Toronto, the biggest bookstore in all of Canada. Okay. And I walked through the front doors of the bookstore and there was 400 people standing in line with my book. And I'm like, what the hell are all these people doing here? Right. I didn't expect this. So I sat down and I start signing books out of the corner of my eye, spot this guy in line and he's got my book clutched against his chest and his face is buried in the floor and he's walking really slow. And I was like, hmm, I'm picking up on some energy here. So I follow him all the way in the line. He gets to the front of the line, puts the book on the table, looks me in the eye and says, me too. Wow. So I knew exactly from that moment on what the rest of my life was going to look like. And then I went across Canada on this book tour and I got completely run over by 
people everywhere I went, five, 10, 15, 20 people at every book signing were coming up and doing the exact wow. same thing, you know? Wow. And that's when I realized that by me finding my own voice and putting a voice to all of this pain and suffering that I could help other people find their voice and do the same thing. And so basically for the last 11 years, that's what I've been doing, traveling all over North America, talking about trauma, mental health and addiction and how they're all That's connected. awesome. Do you speak in schools at all? I speak to every sect, denomination, you cool. name it. And that's, so, and that's your future path is to just continue doing more and more public speaking. Is that correct? Well, I've done 800 speeches in wow. 10 years. So we're pretty much somewhere different once or twice a week. So. Um, well, let me ask you this. If someone listening to the podcast wanted you to come and speak, how do they find you? Well, my website is called theoflurry.life, theoflurry.life. And uh, they can talk to my business manager, Don Roberts. And uh, yeah, we're, um, we're willing to go and, and travel Fleury anywhere. And F-L-E-U-R-Y, so. right? Yes, yes. Theo. Yeah. And I'm on, social, I'm on social media too. So all the awesome. platforms. So. You know, if, if you had just one message to give to our listeners, um, be they addicts, recovered addicts, or families of uh, addicts, what would you say? What message would you give them? Well, for people who deal with addicts, stop enabling them. Because the one thing that we're really good at, addicts and alcoholics, you know, we're really good at, we're really good at collecting yep. enablers. Because the more enablers we have, the longer the behavior will last. And so there's a great program that coincides with Alcoholics Anonymous called Al-Anon. Go to one of those meetings and they'll teach you how to deal with the insanity of the person you're dealing with. Um, on the other side of the coin, because trauma is such a catalyst, right? And trauma produces all kinds of addicts yep. and alcoholics. And people watch porn on the internet and gamble and, you know, get in all kinds of messed up relationships is because yep. of the trauma. Okay. And until you deal with that trauma, you're not going to, you're not going to make it. That's it's right. as simple as that. Right. And, but here's the deal. We have become very aware that mental illness is, an epidemic. We're very aware that addiction is an epidemic. But on the other side of the coin, we have the highest suicide rates in the history of our planet. So why isn't all this awareness being turned into action and getting people well? Well, it's because we haven't created a safe space for the trauma. Hmm. And until we create the safe space for the trauma, we're going to see these numbers continue to rise. Understood. So how do we do this? Well, courageous people who choose a path of healing, they become extremely vulnerable. And what happens with vulnerability is vulnerability creates safety. And then when we have safety, that's when the magic of healing 
happens. And so to the addict and the alcoholic and the person who struggles is, I always say, tell your story. It's your story and it's nobody else's story. And you get to tell your story whichever way you want to tell it. And if you hold this story inside of you, it is going to cause you all kinds of problems. Disease, cancer, diabetes, stress, you name it. Okay. Emotionally, it's going to stunt your growth. Okay. You know, I've been sober for 14 years. I started drinking when I was 15. So I'm only 29 years old, basically. Because they say the day you start drinking is the day you stop maturing. Right. And so, um, And I, you know, and I love all these mental health campaigns because they say one out of five people suffer from mental illness. And I go, why are we shaming the one person who has mental illness? Mm -hmm. Right. Why are we isolating them and making them feel worse than they already feel? And so I say, if you suffer from some sort of mental illness, guess what? You're in the majority, (laughs) not the minority. Interesting. Okay. And it's five and five. It's all of us. Right. And we're all in this together. Well, that's for sure. You know, Theo, I think that you've helped, you must have helped thousands and thousands of people by all the public speaking that you do. And I super appreciate you being willing to come on the podcast and share your story. Because as you say, sharing your story is huge. And your story is going to resonate with some of our listeners. And the hope is that they will then reach out for treatment for themselves or for others and, you know, get better. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. Oh, yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, this is... Um, and I'll, I'll just share one last thing with you is, uh, you know, pain is the greatest motivator for change. Okay. And I could have spent the rest of my life having a pity party, right? right? Pour me, pour me, pour me another drink. (laughs) Right. But I had to look at those experiences from a different lens. Okay. And I realized that the universe picked me. Okay. And, you know, my parents and their struggles was supposed to be a part of my life. My abuser was supposed to be a part of my life because the universe knew that I would figure it out. And then I would take that knowledge, that experience uh, of overcoming those obstacles, and then in turn, give it back. Because whatever you get, you got to give it away Because why would you go through it if there wasn't a purpose at the end of it? And so, you know, I have all this memorabilia behind me, which, you know, sort of showcases the first half of my life. But the second half of my life is really what's going to make, it's what's going to really count. Yep. Right. And, uh, you know, I would trade all this stuff behind me to help one person find their way and find their path to healing because there has been nothing more rewarding in my whole entire life than helping people. And helping 
exactly. is healing. And the more people I've helped, the more I've healed myself. It's that simple. It's not it's, rocket science. It's very true. And it's, it's just, and it's just basic relationship stuff. You know, I call myself an expert in relational trauma because the only way out of this is to find people who can help you find your way. And it's, and then I think, and then I think beyond that that, is to find people that you can then help, which is what you're doing. Because when you start helping other people, that's major that, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about is how you can help others. And you'll never, if you help people, you will never drink or do a drug ever again in the history of your life. And it's, you know, it's that simple. It's that basic. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, you again. Know. Thank you so yeah. much for taking the time. I I so appreciate you oh, telling yeah. your story. My what you're doing is you're you're also creating a safe space for conversation, and conversation and relationship, you know, is the magic formula. It's the Ab- magic pill. Absolutely. You know, because yep. a lot of us, you know, go through life thinking that we're completely alone in our pain and suffering. And, you know, we're not, we're in the majority. Cool. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Theo Fleury. Um, You know, his story of sexual abuse is really quite harrowing. Um, He's, made it beyond that, which I think is huge. Um, His book, as he mentioned, is called Playing with Fire. It is a best-selling autobiography. Um, If you want to check it out, I'm fairly certain that it's available. Well, I think he said it was available on Amazon. He, um, you know, is living a successful life at this point. So, Thank you for listening. Just a reminder that you, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would um, also check out our YouTube channel and subscribe on YouTube and give us a good rating if you can. In a, our next episode, we will be inter- re-interviewing Wes Gear, former rock star and uh, the head of Rock to Recovery. So come back and listen again. And please, if you need help or if you have a loved one that needs help, please do something about it now. Just reach out. You know, I've told, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. You can call Narcan on OHI and it's a completely anonymous phone call. You don't have to give your name. You can ask any question you want to ask. That number is one 231 5924 but sometimes the hardest thing to do is to ask for help and that's where you have to start so please don't wait do it today you have been listening to the addiction podcast point of no return sponsored by narcanon ohi for more information on narcanon ohi call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonohi.org Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.